I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. What I thought I would do was just read a couple of paragraphs from my anthology that uh, explain, as it were, the concept behind it. And then I thought I would read you a very, very short story by Graham Greene, um, which is, I think, pretty funny. Uh, I worked on this anthology for 10 years. Uh, it's called The Literature of Lesbianism a historical anthology from Ariosto to Stonewall, in part because it seemed to me that there was um, a lacunae. Uh, there had been lots of anthologies of quote-unquote lesbian authors, uh, many sort of contemporary literature uh, uh, anthologies of this nature, but nothing really tracking over the centuries the history of the lesbian theme in uh, mainly English, but also uh, European literature more generally. So I conceived of this anthology a long time ago and, and worked on it over the years. Um, it was much, much larger at one point. Uh, it's been cut by almost a half. So um, Ezra Pound said, literature is news that stays news. Uh, it seems to me that lesbianism is also news that stays news, uh, judging by the history of uh, Western literature. So I'll just read you a little passage uh, in which I describe the um, criteria for inclusion. Uh, it was really anybody who had written anything about the theme of female same-sex desire from the Renaissance on. Uh, I began with the Renaissance because it seemed to me that that was the period in which particularly because of the uh, sudden uh, rediscovery, as it were, particularly of Greek and Roman classic writers, uh, Sappho obviously, but also especially Juvenal and Marshall, that female homosexuality, though obviously that, that term was not used uh, before the late 19th century, uh, returned into the literature of the West as uh, uh, a powerful theme, topos, subject matter. Um, here I am talking about my approach. Obviously this means a lot of male writers are included. Uh, it turns out 
in my reading, that the greatest lesbian writers in the Western tradition are, in fact, men, uh, sort of beginning with Shakespeare all the way through to Hemingway and D.H. Lawrence. My own approach is different, I begin, in contrast to those who have tried to group texts in accordance with some uh, idea or possibly fantasy having to do with the sexual orientation of the writer. My own approach is different, less ideologically fraught perhaps, and I hope less compromising. Instead of presuming at the outset what lesbianism is, then trying to find writers who somehow fit the bill, I start with the assumption that it's precisely the category itself that is in need of historical examination. How and when did it first become possible in modern Western culture to think about erotic desire between women? From whence derive our sometimes wildly contradictory notions of what lesbianism is and how it can be recognized? and how to comprehend more broadly the curious and enduring intellectual fascination that fantasies of love between women have exerted over the Western popular imagination since the Renaissance. Literature can enlighten us on such points, but not because it reflects any truth about individual women's lives. Granted, certain works in this volume may offer a fleeting imaginative purchase on what it was like to love another woman in Europe or America at different times over the past 400 years. But the texts included here do not in themselves constitute anything like a documentary history of lesbian life. I make no claim to present the real voices of lesbians. On the contrary, I've sought to shift attention away from lesbianism as lived experience, however narrowly or loosely defined, towards lesbianism as theme, as locus communis, as site of collective imaginative inquiry, as topic of cultural conversation. Far more useful than chasing down the elusive facts of dead women's lives, it seems to me, is to begin exploring the idea of lesbianism itself, its conceptual origins, how it has been transmitted, transformed, and collectively embellished, how is it, it has served over the centuries as something to talk about. I'm less interested in what lesbianism is, in other words, than in what people have said about it its role as rhetorical and cultural topos. And topos, that, that Greek word just means a commonplace or subject uh, for conversation topic. This shift in approach has several dramatic consequences, the most startling of which for some readers will be that I include numerous works in this anthology written by men. The lesbian idea has never been the exclusive intellectual property of the female sex. Indeed, as will already be obvious to anyone who has perused the table of contents, my rough thesis is that in the modern West, the collective mental discovery that women might love and desire one another as men loved and desired them 
is first visibly registered in the writings of men, those humanist poets and scholars of 16th and 17th century Europe who confronted to their mixed pleasure and unease a burgeoning imagery of female-female eros in the recently recovered texts of Sappho, Ovid, Martial, Juvenal, and other Greek and Roman authors of antiquity. To the extent that anyone owned the lesbian idea in the Renaissance, if one may speak in such peculiar terms, it was primarily a male possession. The pervasiveness of female illiteracy in earlier centuries and the general exclusion of women before 1800 from the ferociously male-dominated world of intellectual exchange helped to explain, obviously, why we have so few early writings by women about female same-sex love. This pattern of symbolic ownership would only be disrupted around the beginning of the 20th century with the fervently sapophilic writing of Renee Vivienne, Natalie Barney, Gertrude Stein, H.D., Radcliffe Hall, Amy Lowell, Virginia Woolf, and many others. Yes, of course, women have often written about passion between women, and often enough, too, despite all the problems of definition, one can indeed sense in such writing an unambiguous authorial investment that the woman who produced it was inspired in some, by some lived lesbian experience of her own. Strange would be that reader who finished Radcliffe Hall's potboiler, classic lesbian potboiler, The Well of Loneliness from 1928, without ever wondering if its author had not at some point fallen in love with another woman. But by choosing as my title, The Literature of Lesbianism, I mean to suggest something more capacious than the relatively small corpus of works that would result were one to cast about for authentic lesbian authored texts. One of the most provocative discoveries I have made while compiling this anthology has been just how commonplace, if not indispensable, the lesbian theme has been in modern Western writing. From Ariosto, Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, John Donne, Andrew Marvel, and Aphra Ben, to Coleridge, Balzac, Proust, Strindberg, Henry James, Thomas Hardy, Wolfe, Ernest Hemingway, D.H. Lawrence, Catherine Mansfield, and Elizabeth Bowen, and I choose these names more or less at random, virtually every author of note since the Renaissance has written something somewhere touching on the subject of love between women. A final advantage of the literature of lesbianism rubric then, how easily it converts to the lesbianism of literature, a phenomenon that this work should do something, I hope, to illustrate. Uh, the introduction goes on at great length uh, about the historical ramifications of this argument. Uh, and you know, one of the things that is perhaps, uh, I don't know, controversial about this uh, anthology in, in some way is that I do include uh, sort of early pornographic works uh, from the 17th and 18th century in particular. Um, many of them authored anonymously or 
in some cases by male authors. Uh, I think they had a tremendous influence on the shaping of what I call the lesbian idea uh, over into the modern period, and that I, I do think that the present day social and political visibility, at least in the West, uh, in North America and Europe, has a lot to do with the pornographic uh, proliferation of lesbian imagery since the Renaissance. However, uh, I will, I think I'll, I'll finish here uh, by reading you one of my favorite uh, items in the anthology, uh, a short story by Graham Greene. It appears towards the end. Uh, it appeared in his collection from the 60s uh, called May I Borrow Your Husband, uh, and it's called Chagrin in Three Parts. It was February in Antibes. Gusts of rain blew along the ramparts, and the emaciated statues on the terrace of the Chateau Grimaldi dripped with wet, and there was a sound absent during the flat blue days of summer, the continual rustle below the ramparts of the small surf. All along the coat, the summer restaurants were closed, but lights shone in Felix Opor, and one Peugeot of the latest model stood in the parking rank. The bare masts of the abandoned yachts stuck up like toothpicks, and the last plane in the winter service dropped in a flicker of green, red, and yellow lights like Christmas tree baubles towards the airport of Nice. This was the Antibes I always enjoyed, and I was disappointed to find that I was not alone in the restaurant, as I was most nights of the week. Crossing the road, I saw a very powerful lady dressed in black, who stared out at me from one of the window tables, as though she were willing me not to enter. And when I came in and took my place before the other window, she regarded me with too evident distaste. My raincoat was shabby and my shoes were muddy, and in any case, I was a man. Momentarily, while she took me in, from balding top to shabby toe, she interrupted her conversation with the patron, who addressed her as Madame de Joie. Madame de Joie continued her monologue in a tone of firm disapproval. It was unusual for Madame Volet to be late, but she hoped nothing had happened to her on the ramparts. In winter, there were always Algerians about, she added with mysterious apprehension, as though she were talking of wolves. But nonetheless, Madame Volet had refused Madame de Joie's offer to be fetched from her home. I did not press her under the circumstances Poor Madame Volet. Her hand clutched a huge peppermill like a bludgeon, and, as, and I pictured Madame Volet as a weak, timid old lady, dressed too in black, afraid even of protection by so formidable a hand, a friend. How wrong I was. Madame Volet blew suddenly in with a gust of rain through the side door beside my table and she was young and extravagantly pretty, 
in her tight black pants and with a long neck emerging from a wine-red polo neck sweater. I was glad when she sat down side by side. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Set side with Madame Dujois so that I need not lose the sight of her while I ate. I'm late, she said. I know that I am late. So many little things have to be done when you are alone. And I am not yet accustomed to being alone, she added with a pretty little sob, which reminded me of a cut glass Victorian tear bottle. She took off thick winter gloves with a ringing gesture, which made me think of handkerchiefs wet with grief, and her hands looked suddenly small and useless and vulnerable. Pauvre cocotte, said Madame Dujois. Be quiet here with me and forget a while. I have ordered a bouillabaisse with langouste. But I have no appetite, Emmy. It will come back. You'll see. Now here is your porto, and I've ordered a bottle of Blanc de Blanc. You will make me tout à fait soul. We are going to eat and drink, and for a little while we are both going to forget everything. I know exactly how you are feeling, for I too lost a beloved husband. By death, little Madame Volet said. That makes quite a difference. Death is quite bearable. It is more irrevocable. Nothing could be more irrevocable than my situation, Emmy. He loves a little bitch. All I know of her is that she has deplorable taste or a deplorable hairdresser. But that was exactly what I told him. You were wrong. I should have told him, not you, for he might have believed me, and in any case, my criticism would not have hurt his pride. I love him, Madame Volet said. I cannot be prudent. And then she suddenly became aware of my presence. She whispered something to her companion, and I heard the reassurance en anglais. I watched her as covertly as I could. Like most writers, I have the spirit of a voyeur, and I wondered how stupid married men could be. I was temporarily free, and I very much wanted to console her, but I didn't exist in her eyes now that she knew I was English, nor in the eyes of Madame de Joie. I was less than human. I was only a reject from the common market. I ordered two small rouget and a half bottle of Puy, and I tried to be interested in the trollop I had brought with me, but my attention strayed. I adored my husband, Madame de Joie was saying, and her hand again grasped the pepper mill, but this time it looked less like a bludgeon. I still do, Emmy, that's the worst of it. I know that if he came back, mine can never come back, Madame de Joie retorted, 
touching the corner of one eye with her handkerchief and then examining the smear of black left behind. In a gloomy silence, they both drained their portos. Then Madame de Joie said with determination, there is no turning back. You should accept that as I do. There remains for us only the problem of adaptation. After such betrayal, I could never look at another man, Madame Volet replied. At that moment, she looked right through me. I felt invisible. I put my hand between the light and the wall to prove that I had a shadow, and the shadow looked like a beast with horns. I would never suggest another man, Madame de Joie said. Never. What then? When my poor husband died from an infection of the bowels, I thought myself quite inconsolable. But I said to myself, courage, courage, you must learn to laugh again. To laugh, Madame Volet exclaimed. To laugh at what? But before Madame de Joie could reply, Monsieur Felix had arrived to perform his neat surgical operation upon the fish for the bouillabaisse. Madame de Joie watched with real interest. Madame Volet, I thought, watched for politeness sake while she finished a glass of Blanc de Blanc. When the operation was over, Madame de Joie filled the glasses and said, I was lucky enough to have une amie who taught me not to mourn for the past. She raised her glass and cocking a finger as I had seen men do, she added, pas de molesse. Pas de molesse, Madame Volet repeat, repeated with a wan, enchanting smile. I felt decidedly ashamed of myself, a cold literary observer of human anguish. I was afraid of catching Madame Volet's eyes. What kind of a man was capable of betraying her for a woman who, so, who took the wrong sort of rinse, and I tried to occupy myself with sad Mr. Crawley's courtship as he stumped up the muddy lane in his big clergyman's boots. But in any case, the two of them had dropped their voices. A gentle smell of garlic came to me from the bouillabaisse. The bottle of Blanc de Blanc was nearly finished, and in spite of Madame Volet's protestation, Madame de Joie had called for another. There are no half bottles, she said. We can always leave something for the gods. Again, their voices sank to an intimate murmur as Mr. Crawley's suit was accepted, though how he was to support an inevitably large family would not appear until the succeeding volume. I was startled out of my forced concentration by a laugh, a musical laugh. It was Madame Volet's. Cochon, she exclaimed. Madame de Joie regarded her over her glass. The new bottle had already been broached under beetling brows. I am telling you the truth, she said. He would crow like a cock. But what a joke to play. It began as a joke, but he was really proud of himself. Après seulement deux coups. Jamais trois? Madame Volet asked, and she giggled and splashed a little, of wa a little wine down her polo-necked collar. Jamais. Je suis Saul. Moi aussi, cocotte. 
Madame Volet said, to crow like a cock. At least it was a fantaisie. My husband has no fantaisie. He is strictly classical. Pas de vis, no vices. Et là, pas de vis. And yet you miss him. He worked hard, Madame Volet said and giggled. To think that at the end he must have been working hard for both of us. You found it a little boring? It was a habit. How one misses a habit. I wake now at five in the morning. At five? It was the hour of his greatest activity. My husband was a very small man, Madame de Joie said. Not in height, of course. He was two meters high. Oh, Paul is big enough, but always the same. Why do you continue to love that man? Madame de Joie sighed and put her large hand on Madame Volet's knee. She wore a signet ring, which perhaps had belonged to her late husband. Madame Volet sighed too, and I thought melancholy was returning to the table, but then she hiccuped and both of them laughed. Tu es vraiment Saoul, cocotte, you are really drunk. Do I truly miss Paul, or is it, is it that I only, is it only that I miss his habits? She suddenly met my eye and blushed right down into the wine-colored, wine-stained polo neck collar. Madame de Joie repeated reassuringly, an Anglais ou un Américain. She hardly bothered to lower her voice at all. Do you know how limited my experience was when my husband died? I loved him when he crowed like a cock. I was glad he was so pleased. I only wanted him to be pleased. I adored him. And yet, in those days, j'ai joui peut-être trois fois par semaine. I did not expect more. This is three times a week. It seemed to me a natural limit. In my case, it was three times a day, Madame Volet said and giggled again. Mais toujours d'un façon classique, always in a classic fashion. She put her hands over her face and gave a little sob. Madame de Joie put an arm round her shoulders. There was a long silence while the remains of the bouillabaisse were cleared away. Men are curious animals. Madame de Joie said at last. The coffee had come and they divided one mark between them, in, term, in turn dipping lumps of sugar which they inserted into each other's mouth. Animals, too, lack imagination. A dog has no fantaisie. How bored I have been sometimes, Madame Volet said. He would talk politics continually and turn on the news at eight in the morning. At eight! What do I care for politics? But if I asked his advice about anything important, he showed no interest at all. With you, I can talk about anything, about the whole world. I adored my husband, Madame de Joie said, yet it was only after his death I discovered my capacity for love. With Pauline. You never knew Pauline. She died five years ago. I loved her more than I ever loved Jacques, and yet I felt no despair when she died. I knew that it was not the end. 
for I knew by then my capacity. I have never loved a woman, Madame Volet said. Cherie, then you do not know what love can mean. With a woman, you do not have to be content with une façon classique three times a day. I love Paul, but he is different from me in every way. Unlike Pauline, he is a man. Oh, Emmy, you describe him so perfectly. How well you understand. A man. When you really think of it, how comic that little object is. Hardly enough to crow about, one would think. Madame Volet giggled and said, Cochon. Perhaps smoked like an eel, one might enjoy it. Stop it, stop it. They rocked up and down with little gusts of laughter. They were drunk, of course, but in the most charming way. How distant now seemed Trollope's muddy lane, the heavy boots of Mr. Crawley, his proud, shy courtship. In time we travel a space as vast as any astronaut's. When I looked up, Madame Volet's head rested on Madame de Joie's shoulder. I feel so sleepy, she said. Tonight you shall sleep, chérie. I am so little good to you, I know nothing. In love one learns quickly. But am I in love, Madame Volet asked, sitting up very straight and staring into Madame de Joie's somber eyes. If the answer were no, you wouldn't ask the question. But I thought I could never love again. Not another man, Madame de Joie said. Cherie, you are almost asleep. Come. The bill? Madame Volet said as though perhaps she were trying to delay the moment of decision. I will pay tomorrow. What a pretty coat this is, but not warm enough, Cherie, in February. You need to be cared for. You have given me back my courage, Madame Volet said. When I came in here, I was si démoralisée. Soon, I promise, you'll be able to laugh at the past. I have already laughed, Madame Volet said. Did he really crow like a cock? Yes. I shall never be able to forget what you said about smoked eel. Never, if I saw one now. She began to giggle again, and Madame de Joie steadied her a little on the way to the door. I watched them cross the road to the car park. Suddenly, Madame Volet gave a little hop and skip and flung her arms around Madame de Joie's neck, and the wind blowing through the archway of the port carried the faint sound of her laughter to me, where I sat alone, chez Félix. I was glad she was happy again. I was glad that she was in the kind, reliable hands of Madame de Joie. What a fool Paul had been, I reflected, feeling chagrin myself now for so many wasted opportunities. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>